Welcome to the January 3rd session of Chat with the Designers. This is a weekly online session held every Tuesday at this time for the purpose of technical interchange, question and answer with various designers that we have here in our QRP and homebrewing community and just a general watering hole that we can count on for discussions of things that might interest us as uh, homebrewers, as experimenters, or people who build and enjoy using the, the kits here in the QRP land. We usually have a theme or a topic for each session, and we also discuss any general topic that might be of interest to us along the lines of homebrewing and technical topics of measurement, operating, transmitters, receivers, you name it, along the way. My name is George, N2APB. And I'm here with co-host Joe, N2CX. Uh, together we are your uh, form, uh, your moderators. This is a moderated session, and what we do is pass the mic around when appropriate, but uh, so that we don't talk over each other at any given time, we like to kind of pass it back and forth between whoever's speaking and the moderator, such that we can, much like a net control on the air, we can help regulate the conversation here on, on this cha- uh, station. Here's a quick rundown of the way that we operate each week. Uh, we use a PTT or a push-to-talk key on your keyboard. This is important that as you've set up your client, your TeamSpeak 3 client on your keyboard, you've selected an unused or a less, lesser-used key on the keyboard as you press to, to talk uh, button. Currently, I'm using my right control key as this is not used uh, very often when surfing or doing email and such, which you find that you can do here while listening to Chat with the Designers. Please, when you set up your client, do not use Vox. Room noise and other sounds that you make there at your operating station will indeed PTT line and you will indeed be broadcasting whatever sounds there locally that you don't intend to. We use a text area at the bottom of the screen if you're using a uh, Windows client which I'm most familiar with here. At the bottom of the screen you'll see a freeform text area preceded by the letter A and just above that you'll see two tabs. On mine it's labeled OpenHP SDR server and QRP homebrewing. We are in the QRP homebrewing channel So please click that and you will see the text area. So this is an area that we like to talk about text, send links and other information about what is going on. So what we're going to do is introduce today's session, which is a second part of a session that that we started last time, Homebrew Filter Design and Measurement Techniques. Last time we talked about overview of the the proper use of a low-pass filter, different ways in which you might use it, uh, some of the design parameters that constitute the low-pass filter design. And this week we're going to be talking about opponent selection for that and ultimately using some of the design tools that allow you as a designer to go through and either design yourself a new low-pass filter or LPF or understand the LPF that you have in your given radio or the circuit that you're you're working with. No better way to understand things than to understand how the circuit might might have been originally designed, maybe some of the parameters that were important to the designer, such that you can indeed best use that particular... The text area, what I'm going to do in just a moment is put the uh, URL, the web address of the main page that we've that, would do, that we've been using for this purpose. Hopefully, hopefully you're able to see this particular address. If you don't already have a web page on your screen or the web content printed out in front of you, we're going to use this content very interactively and a lot this uh, uh, this session here. Joe and I have put together a lot of material that augments uh, the current mini tutorial series that we're running on this. I think you'll find this information to be really useful. And what we're going to do is walk through it almost step by step in order to help understand what the steps are for designing the circuit, what some of the considerations are, what our results are so far. I think you'll find it interesting. There is 
is brand new information here, just posted this afternoon. And also, we'll be discussing a circuit that is going to soon be a, a small kit that one can order in order to help measure not only low-pass filter, but other devices under test. So if my voice can hold out just a little bit longer, I'm going to pass it over to Joe in just a moment to, to kick it off. Okay, nothing heard. Then without further ado, I'm going to toss it over to Joe and to CX, and he's going to start going through and essentially picking up where we left off last time with the general design specifications that we have for the project, for the low-pass filter design, and then ultimately start getting into the design component uh, selection using the tool from AADE, also from Kits and Parts, another uh, useful tool that we'll find along the way. So, Joe, why don't you take it away, please? All right, thank you, George. Yeah, we, uh, we did discuss low-pass filters in their application last week. Generally uh, speaking, what we're trying to do is to uh, come up with uh, a low-pass filter design, something we might have some use for, something practical that uh, we can understand. And uh, we came up with a um, desire for a PRP filter, low-pass filter, ideally using standard components, no special components, nothing made of unobtainium, that, that could be used for a PRP uh, transmitter output filter. The uh, the impetus for the filter actually is one of the good citizens, the FCC requires that we attenuate any unwanted products in our transmitter signal to 43 dB or less below the, uh, the desired signal. Uh, in order to uh, clean up any harmonics that might be present at transmitter output, we have to put some sort of filter there. So we came up with a, a prototype filter that idea would be um, uh, working a 50 ohm system, 50 ohms in and out which is typical. It would pass 7 to 7.3 megahertz, which is a 40 meter handband here in the U.S., with less than half a dB of attenuation and ripple in the pass band. In other words, if you put a signal through, you would lose no more than half a dB in that output filter. And I incorrectly stated last week that that was 6%, it's really 11% loss. For QRP, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about component stress for higher power transmitters, but it's not too stressful for the ordinary components we use it. We want to reject the second harmonic, in other words, 14 megahertz and any other harmonics above that, at least 40 dB, figuring that there is some minimum attenuation in the uh, in the output amplifier, the uh, transmitter, or harmonic. It'll give us plenty of margin if we have at least 40 dB of attenuation. And just for practicality, we want to use inductors with a Q of 100 or more. Generally speaking, most of the uh, powdered iron toroids that uh, we'd be using for these filters do have a, uh, a Q of at least 100. Just as a point of information or question, sometimes we've wanted to use surface mount inductors instead of toroids. What, what's the general cue of available surface mount inductors as compared to toroids, perhaps? If, if you're talking of inductors, surface mount inductors uh, in, in uh, inductances in the uh, microhendries general, generally, uh, you might have cues of 40, which could cause some attenuation, some additional loss in a filter. Uh, in the higher frequencies, UHF and VHF, you're talking about nanohenry inductors, you're not quite so lossy, so they might be suitable there. Generally speaking, for HF purposes, except for some special purpose uses, you do not want to use a uh, surface mount inductor in a, uh, a low-pass filter. Now, surface mount capacitors may indeed be uh, sufficient if you use the right dielectric, so they'd be appropriate. Just by way of uh, background, the filter design that we recommended was a, uh, a fifth-order elliptical or power filter to get minimum minimum parts to get the uh, desired attenuation. And if you're following along with what was on the web page, that was on the first page. I have a question. I'm a little concerned about uh, 
C3 and C5. Uh, I understood the soft rock low pass filter where the inductor was sitting there by itself. Now, when you resonate that, I'm, I'm thinking this is a peaking, something that contributes to peaking or something on the roll off, but you're adding parallel capacitors to the inductors. And I'm just curious as to why that doesn't affect the, we're doing a low pass filter. So it looks like it would pass some of your higher frequencies. I don't quite understand the, the addition of those two caps, that's it. Well, you can think of it this way. It's not just a capacitor. It's a capacitor in parallel with an inductor, uh, which forms a resonant circuit, which means the frequency where they're resonant, it will give you a, a big knot. And uh, as it turns out, in a properly designed filter, if you, if you just go ahead and throw capacitors on willy-nilly, you might get that. But part of the, uh, the mathematics that are behind the design programs we have, the mathematics dictate that uh, that will not cause uh, problems. It, it's part of the, uh, the intricate math that, that goes behind it. That said, one thing that some folks have done is they've taken ordinary fan-fast filters without this configuration where they have a ladder filter with capacitors to ground and inductors in series, and they've tried to... Uh, resonate those inductors at higher frequencies to trap out certain harmonics. If you do that experimentally, you may get away with it. You've got to very carefully measure it to get the results right. But the design procedure, this software that uh, designs the filters that we're using, take that into account so that uh, it doesn't add up to allowing uh, higher frequencies to get through. That answer your question? Pretty darn close. Uh, I guess the thing is, what was the advantage of having the resonant circuit over a straight inductor? I, I, we must gain something, and I'm, I think it's probably a sharper uh, roll-off, I would think, uh, somehow. Yes, indeed, you're exactly right. That is the reason for using these elliptical filters. Having an additional uh, resonant circuit up there does give you a much sharper roll-off. Um, Trade-off is that it will, for those who are concerned about it, it will uh, cause quite a bit of wild fluctuation in uh, the phase of the signals that pass through and the uh, can cause problems with group delay. Not a big deal here because it's a, a relatively broadband filter and we're going to pass narrowband filters through. If you try to do something, say an audio with this, where you're trying to pass a digital signal through, the group delay at the uh, group delay variations in the roll-off could indeed uh, muck up the data. That's not an issue here. All right, going along, that was that was the goal. We suggested to use a couple tools. I think George uh, George mentioned them. One of the really good design tools is the AADE Solar Designer. The URL is in the notes. It's from the um, Neil Hector, the guy's name is, who runs almost all digital electronics, who makes a very good inductance and capacitance meter. He's provided this the software free download, and it does a very good job of allowing you to design all sorts of bandpass, low-pass, and high-pass filters on your computer. That works quite well. Just as an aside, I use it on Windows, but I've run it under Wine on uh, Linux, so it does work there. And the other tool that is handy is the uh, Kitson Park Toroid Winding Calculator. In order to uh, design your toroid uh, inductors, that gives you a, a graphical uh, online interface to tell which core to use and, and how many turns on the core to get a, a given inductance value you need so that you don't end up with some oddball inductor. Okay, the first thing you've got to do is to specify the uh, filter characteristics. What we did to specify this uh, in the AADE uh, filter designer was we specified the roll-off frequency. Since it's a low-pass low filter, the roll-off is the highest point we want to pass uh, with minimum attenuation. We specify the cutoff frequency, which is the first frequency we want to attenuate severely. The highest filter we want to pass is the high end of 
the 40 meter band or 7.3 megahertz and we want to uh, stop or attenuate everything at 14 megahertz or above and just for starting point in the design said we wanted to have, have a half db ripple or attenuation in the pass band so to start off we we use that value to try to see how the filter will work out. And we're using a fifth order power filter. So uh, the, the order is five. Input and output impedance are 50 ohms. That's all we have to enter. And then the thing goes ahead and uh, chunks a wall and prints out a schematic with some uh, component values. In the, um, on the web page in the printout, uh, you can see the, the component values. Indeed, there are three capacitors, uh, actually five capacitors, two of them to uh, ground up to a couple series legs, and the series legs, as uh, we were discussing, are LCs, parallel resonant circuits. I won't bore you with all the numbers, but the, uh, all the L's and C's are there as a starting value. Uh, it's also convenient to, um, if you want to, you can, you can change these components by clicking on the components so that you can tweak the values in the filter design. And one of the reasons we want to do this is, for example, uh, the first pastor in the filter is 710 picofarads. Well, that's not a standard value. The closest standard value to that would be either a 680, uh, in the 5% value, 680 or 750 picofarads. So part of the design process then is, is going ahead and, and uh, choosing the standard capacitor values to try to get something we can obtain. Similarly with the inductors, the first inductor is 1.262 microhenry. Well, we're not going to get exactly that. So what we have to do then is to drop back and go to uh, kits and parts for a designer, plug in a uh, core, a uh, toroid core that we might want to use, and then plug in the desired inductance value, and it will tell you how many turns to put on the, uh, on the toroid core to get you in the ballpark. What I wanted to do was to um, underscore and or emphasize the AAD filter design software. There's a link in there, as Joe said, to get it, and you can actually download it, and when you run it, You'll, you'll, it'll come up in a, in a manner that is pretty intuitive and straightforward. And when you load it onto your system, it should show some of the screens that, that, that we've shown here on, on the website. In step one, when we specify the filter, there is an opportunity when you first bring up the program to select the topology or the kind of filter that you want. As Joe said, of course, we're designing an elliptical cower filter. And when you click on that, the screen that we show here in step one uh, shows. When you enter in the information, the important information, and this is straight from the design specs. So this is kind of a cookbook in that regard. Uh, the roll-off point is uh, specified as 7.3 megahertz. You see that as F1. F2 is equal to 14 megahertz, the point at which we want the second harmonic significantly reduced. That's in the stop band. The A pass field is the is the ripple that occurring in the pass band and is specified in DB. The section of that window in red that you see is uh, giving you some prompts and some helpful information for that that request the field that you're currently entering in. When you come down to the order and you enter five, that's a, a five. This is a five-pole filter, and the order of the filter is five. And as you'll find out if you experiment in here, you can either enter the order or the, the stop band frequency. And in our case, we specify the order, which automatically brings up the topology of having what John was describing as uh, two, two series inductors, each with a capacitor across. Uh, and then of course our input and output impedance, we have to specify at 50 ohms. Once that's all done, you hit the green enter key on the keypad shown in that window. And that will generate the, um, um, the schematic, what I call the first pass schematic that you see there in step number two. 
And then picking up where Joe really was at that point, it's the first pass because oftentimes there is iteration that's required, as Joe was saying, to select components that are more practical, more commercially available, things that you might have in a junk box. And in this case here, with the capacitors that are shown, these are kind of impractical capacitors. You won't find those listed in any uh, Mauser catalog or DigiKey catalog. So what we do is we go on to step three and we change those capacitors to a good unknown value. When you want to change a capacitor using this tool, you put the your cursor on the capacitor in the circuit diagram. So in the diagram, you might see dipole two. The, the section that's, that's labeled dipole two and that first capacitor there ultimately is C2. It's C2 because it's in dipole 2. A di the dipole number 4 is the next capacitor over to the right, vertically, and that capacitor is C4. It's in the dipole C4. Um, in between 2 and 4, of course, is dipole 3, which is the series inductor with a capacitor across it. Those components are labeled, respectively, L3 and C3. So that's the nomenclature that's commonly used for the design of uh, filters. And when designers ultimately get their schematic all brushed up and dusted off and ready for publication, that's usually the order in which, if not the exact numbering that they would use for those uh, uh, components in that filter. And as John and Joe were discussing, this five-pole elliptical filter is exactly what's used in and many of the kinds of transmitters uh, that we have, because it is such a good performer for sharp roll-off, which is what we want when we have multi-band filters. You want to be able to roll it off very clearly so another filter, another band, can be handled with another filter essentially overlapping it in, in, in parallel. By example, we use this, this five-pole elliptical filter in the DDS-60. I'm very familiar, of course, with the DDS-60. Many of you might be as well, and this is exactly the, where those component values came from and this particular topology came from. So once you've selected the capacitors, then you can essentially use the oh, step number three. What I showed is a page from the DigiKey catalog, and the link is there as well, showing silver mica capacitors and all the common capacitance values. You see the, the row that indicates the voltage, the capacitance, temperature coefficient, and so on. So going down the capacitance column, you can find the capacitor value that most closely comes to the target that you're shooting for, and chances are all things considered, with tolerances and, and such, you can get something that's pretty close, and that then is something you would lock into your design by specifying that when, when you right-click on that capacitor and change it to that value. Uh, in other words, instead of 710, but ultimately I chose 680. So I chose a, a capacitance of 680 picofarads for C2, and I got that from that page in DigiKey. So when it comes time to actually build this in this uh, circuit, once all the component values are chosen the way that I've described, I would actually go to the DigiKey catalog and order that 680 puff cap and some extras and such so, so that I can actually build up the circuit that was designed. Now, if you have a nice, rich, deep junk box, of course, you might have a good selection of capacitors from which you can uh, pull. And as an aside, while you're at DigiKey or Mauser or Kits and Parts and, and all our different suppliers, many of them offer a, a collection of different valued parts. 10 of this, 10 of that, 10 of that, and you end up with like 100 different capacitors perhaps, or 100 different capacitance values if, if you're so inclined to really stock up uh, your, uh, your junk box. And it is invaluable when it comes time to whip up a new circuit or you want to move your roll-off frequency of the... Um, uh, of your filter a little bit, so you don't need that. You might not need the 680. You might want uh, uh, a different value capacitor, and you'd have it at your hands. 
and right at the tip of your fingers. Okay, so then after you've selected all your components and you see a good printout as you see in step four of uh, the filter and its components, it's time to start analyzing the design. Joe, why don't I pass it over to you after you've uh, liquidated your throat a little bit and maybe you can continue on here. Thank you, George. Yeah, excellent. Uh, yeah, you filled in some of the, the gaps that I, uh, I glossed over because they're intuitively obvious the most casual observer. Um, by the by, uh, just the side to you, George, I did uh, analyze your filter uh, and I sent you the values. don't know if you had a chance to look, but um, your design indeed still has an insertion also of 1DB at... Uh, uh, in the past band, so at 7.3 megahertz, I was able to do that in a few minutes before uh, the TeamSpeak session. Okay, now we've got the design, we want to analyze it and see how good it is. So, um, in the uh, the AADE uh, Cooper design uh, uh, software window, there's a, a tab you can click that says analysis. And the analysis tab then uses these component values and allows you to to crank in um, a, a start and a stop frequency for a plot, um, and also the the uh, the top of the scale and the bottom of the scale. For example, uh, usually you want to use zero dB for the top of the scale, which would be no loss, and the bottom of the scale would be um, you're looking wide in a filter, would be uh, something below the maximum attenuation you want. Um, numbers I use for a wide wide view, uh, well, actually, the numbers that George used for a wide view, he used 0 dB for the top, 130 dB for the bottom, and he scanned from, I can't quite read it, I think it was uh, 700, 730 kilohertz to 10 megahertz. So then that gave a good wide sweep, page 7 of the, uh, well, it's, uh, it's a figure, the N2APP design at any rate, uh, here in the, uh, on the web page, prints out to page 7. You can see the sweep, and it's pretty flat, up to 73 megahertz, and then it rolls off, and you see two notches, uh, high attenuation. One is about 14 megahertz, the other is at uh, 21 megahertz. And um, those two notches, those big notches are due to those two um, parallel resonant circuits in the top of the uh, top of the filter uh, schematic. Um, alternatively, if you want to look close in uh, at the uh, the passband ripple, and the attenuation in the passband, you uh, you select um, frequencies in close. I, uh, I swept mine from uh, 7 to 8 megahertz, started 7 and ended at 8 megahertz, 0 dB for the top of the scale, and minus 5 dB for the bottom of the scale. So then that shows you the roll-off within the uh, passband of the filter, so that you can tell how much attenuation you have in the desired uh, passband. Um, one subtlety that comes about when you're doing this, by the way, I should have mentioned earlier, there are several selections for the type of plot you want. There's voltage effective, voltage insertion, voltage effective gain, 
voltage insertion gain power insertion gain po uh, power effective gain and a whole bunch of other things generally speaking for the filter what you want to do is to look at the insertion loss the the power insertion loss on there they call it gain you pick power insertion gain which tells you how much attenuation you have uh, with this filter in line as compared to having a short circuit instead of the filter. That, that gives you the, uh, the most bang for your buck. So after you've analyzed this thing, um, you might want to uh, go back and tweak some of the values. For example, it's not shown in the handout, but I iterated five times. I, uh, I, I saw that my desired attenuation that I cranked into the original design was half a dB and the first pass through I was only getting uh, I was getting uh, just under a dB so I kept playing around with uh, various numbers the uh, the roll-off frequencies and uh, and the desired ripple or attenuation and I, I came to the conclusion that the excessive ripple I was getting was because of the uh, uh, the loss in the toroids. I had picked a Q value of 100 for the toroids, which is probably representative, but that was giving me some additional loss. So then to counteract that, what I had to do in the initial design I found empirically was I had to go back and tell it to design for a tenth of a dB of uh, uh, in-band ripple or loss. And when I did that, it cranked through the values and it gave me a new set of values. This time, with a Q of 100, it gave me a, a loss of something like 4 tenths of a dB. So the uh, point is, I had to over-design the filter to take into account the finite loss in the toroid core to, uh, to get the uh, response I wanted. It may be in the um, design process as you're going through too, some of the roll-offs may not be quite what you want uh, in terms of the frequencies where where it rolls off or where the attenuation starts. So you may have to go back and forth playing with the uh, the numbers for those frequencies to get a uh, response curve that looks like what you want. Similarly, when you crank in the uh, uh, the standard capacitor values and uh, the finite uh, inductances you can get from the uh, selection inductances from the toroids, you might find that the, uh, the uh, roll-off or the uh, attenuation is not exactly what you need. So you may have to go in and, and just diddle some of the values to, uh, to try to get them right on. But ultimately, you can get something that's pretty good. I ended up uh, with uh, the final filter was something that used standard 5% values um, and um, pretty good cores. I ended up with uh, an in-band attenuation of something on the order of um, about four-tenths of a dB, which is pretty darn good. And indeed a roll-off of uh, better than 60 dB at 14 megahertz. So um, after about five iterations, a little playing around, I was able to get it pretty well. Um, George took a little different tack. He didn't go through the iterations like I did, and um, he came up with slightly different results. 
But uh, you can see in the uh, on the web page uh, some of the plots of George's versus my folder and uh, some of the different numbers. I think he also, yes, he used power effective gain in one of his plots. I'm not sure if he corrected it in the final final um, uh, stuff on the web page. But uh, what you need to do is the uh, power insertion gain. So that what you get is uh, representative of what is actually in the filter, uh, as opposed to the effective uh, effective gain is uh, the gain relative to the filter itself. It just looks at the amount of ripple rather than the total amount of attenuations there. Uh, it's probably good for some uses, but uh, for our purposes, what you want is the insertion gain. You want to know what the, uh, the gain or loss is of the filter itself as compared to a short circuit, rather than uh, comparing it to itself. Um, a lot of material, a lot of stuff I've gone over. Uh, I'm sure somebody has a question. Please feel free. Go ahead. What type of uh, dielectric uh, should one use for a surface mount capacitor to get uh, low enough loss? Uh, basically, what you're going to use is uh, an NP0 type uh, dielectric would be the best. I don't think you can get glass capacitors, but the um, the higher K capacitors like the X7R and the, to get what some of the other numbers are, have much higher loss and um, a lot of temperature sensitivity. So what you want to shoot for is the NP0 type dielectric, also called uh, COG these days, I think. Uh, that answer your question? Yes, thanks. That's one of the subtleties you get into when you're designing it. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, those of us have been, been through it several times, so I've found it the hard way. But uh, what you do and don't want to do. And uh, torrids are particularly good, by the way, for small inductors, uh, physically small, the relatively high Q. And one of the real advantages is that, uh, as opposed to air core inductors, um, they don't tend to couple to the other inductors in a circuit. If you have a uh, filter with uh, three or four inductors in there, you have to very carefully orient those inductors so that the, um, they don't talk to each other. Uh, if they couple in the least to any of the other inductors in the filters, um, in the filter, um, the filter response will go all the heck. But toroids tend to be self-shielding, so they don't have that problem. Um, okay, we we want to go into a little bit. Uh, George, do you want to just talk about the toroid winding selection a little bit? Give my voice a rest for a sec. Sure thing, Joe. Actually, I was uh, I was updating the web page because it seems that some of the images that I had for your passband and your schematic and such didn't uh, show up for some reason. Um, but I was just about ready to correct it, and I'll have it, for those of you who are looking at the web page live, I'll have that updated uh, just as soon as I, I'm able to get back to the keyboard. Um, as uh, we've been listing some of the design tools that are really helpful, and just there are just two of them here that, we've been, that we used. Um, the second one is uh, from Diz, W-A-D-I-Z, uh, out in Michigan. Um, <clears throat> At least I think he's in Michigan. Um, he might be in Florida now. 
But, Harder these days, yes. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, he has a, a little company that he runs called Kitson Parts, and it is just a wonderful, wonderful source for uh, uh, cores, uh, toroidal cores, and associated uh, inductor uh, um, uh, cores and components. So what what he's what he provides on his uh, website is um, a tool called Toroid Designer. Okay, I got it. It's called TCalc. Um, it's called tcalc.html, and it's an interactive web page, and it's just really a, a dandy program for quickly uh, determining how many um, how many turns to put on what kind of a core in order to achieve the spe- uh, specific inductance you're after at a given frequency. Now, actually, this tool doesn't show the frequency uh, selection uh, item, but you can go to your handbook. Um, I use uh, the Paul Harden uh, book. I think I referenced it elsewhere in here on the webpage, um, uh, QRP data for homebrew, uh, technical data for QRPers and homebrewers. And it shows the frequency ranges that uh, toroids are good for. And if you want one, as in our case, to be really uh, suitable for 7 megahertz, you would select a, in this case, you would select a, um, a number two mix. Uh, that's where the uh, uh, the T37-2 on my circuit uh, design. Joe chose to use a T50-2. The T37 and the T50 correspond to uh, 0.37 inches in diameter, or for the T50, it's 0.5 inches in diameter. So it's just a larger core with slightly different, uh, the same kind of mix. Oh, it's the same kind of permeability, which helps determine, uh, which directly determines the amount of inductance that you have with the wires going um, around the core. Um, so um, our turns, as it turns out, um, were slightly different between his design with the T50-2 versus mine with the T37-2. But they were very close. And um, with this tool from Kits and Parts, you're able to specify, in this case here I showed, uh, for 7 megahertz, I wanted an inductance of uh, 1.26 microhenries. And then that dev- once the input, any two parameters would generate the, this table. Once uh, that those were input, all of this data uh, was generated, and I would learn that I could get the desired inductance with uh, a T25-2 using 19 turns, or uh, any of the others that are that are listed there. I just happen to know that, well, that I have a lot of uh, T37-2s, and Joe has a bunch of T50-2s, so that's that's kind of what we did. And just as an aside, the dash two mix is characterized generally uh, by a red color on the toroid, on one side of the toroid. Uh, another popular one, if you go up higher in frequencies, up to 14 megahertz and certainly higher, <clears throat> is the mix number six which is characterized um, by a yellow coloring on the toroid. So once we find out how many turns to put on a given toroid to get that specified inductance, um, we uh, wound the, uh, the toroids. And I think I was the only one, I'm, I'm not sure if Joe actually had a chance to get the physical circuit, but in step number seven, what you can actually see is a photo of the low-pass filter that uh, um, I uh, homebrewed up. I took a, <clears throat> and if you click on the photo, you can get a larger image of it. Um, 
I was able to put the specified capacitors that we mentioned above um, and the uh, given toroids <clears throat> um, onto certain onto pads, little islands that I created with a tool that uh, we um, popularized back uh, some 10 years ago called the Islander Bit. It's a 5mm round end mill. And uh, when partially drilled into a copper clad board, it isolates the island, it isolates the pad from the rest of the ground plane, and you can actually solder to that. So where the two inductors meet the two capacitors uh, up at the upper nodes of that, uh, of the topology there is where those islands are. And I had soldered the BNC connectors to either side. Um, the bottom ends or the grounded ends of the capacitors, I just grounded, I soldered right to the copper copper clad. Um, and this is a, a very popular, convenient, easy, and pretty neat way of building a circuit. Those of you who might have been following homebrewing techniques over the years um, uh, might be familiar with uh, Jim Corchy, K-A-I-Q-Y, um, who popularized this Manhattan-style building technique, along with uh, Chuck Adams, um, K7QO. Um, very good home brewers, very neat home brewers and precision construction techniques that utilized these very uh, techniques that we're talking about here. Manhattan style is a generic term and is a quick and easy way to make up your circuits. And that's what we did here for the low-pass filter. So um, after the, after the low-pass filter was built up, and next comes time for actually measuring the performance. This is where this is where some of the interesting part here starts in step number eight on the web page. This is where the some the next phase of the really interesting part of this whole project comes in, at least for me, because what the bottom line is what we're doing in the block diagram you see, what we do is we're taking a signal source, we're injecting it into the device under test. In this case the DUT is the our low pass filter. And then we're taking the output of the low-pass filter and we're measuring it in some fashion. Now, for a signal source, what you can do is you can take any kind of uh, signal generator that you might happen to have handy. Um, the, the more stable, the more precision or precisely that you can set it, the better it's going to be. You can go for something as fancy as a signal generator, an HP 8640B that both Joe and I have on our bench. Um, you can also take a DDS-based instrument, such as the Micro 908, which ultimately I used on my side. Um, my HC908VFO project. Uh, the Pickle 3 is another popular DDS type of controller. Or you can even just take a PC with uh, that's parallel port controlling your DDS card, the DDS60 card. Anything that's going to generate a, a known frequency that ultimately you can adjust and sweep over a range into that low-pass filter, that device under test. George, uh, slight clarification. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, should anyone ask, uh, you need a very good sine wave for uh, the filter measurements. Uh, you might be tempted to use something like the SI570, but unfortunately it has a uh, square wave output, which means that the third harmonic is something only about 13 dB down. The fifth harmonic is... Uh, that's 20 dB down and so on. Uh, that's not at all suitable for measuring uh, filters. Great point, Joe. Thanks. Um, and actually, um, other limitations or, or cautions, I guess, on the, um, you want to be sure that you've got a really good sine wave and it's uh, no, you know, uh, nothing 
that approximates a triangle, a triangular wave or a dirty sine wave or a lot of spurs and harmonics because anytime that we're looking to measure measure output in some in this fashion uh, you want to be sure that you're free of any of the uh, additional frequencies that might be getting through the filter that would affect the readings that you're that you're going to be taking so in the output of the device under test you want to measure how much of that signal how much of that sign that our rf sine wave is actually coming out of the filter in our case you know with the filter it's going to pass with little attenuation everything in the pass band that is up to and including 7.3 mag and then beyond 7.3 in this into the stop band it's going to attenuate greatly attenuate hopefully the signals such that there's going to be very little output and that's exactly what we look to verify in the measure and plot uh, diagram there in order to do this you can do something as simple as an rf probe and a digital voltmeter an rf probe of course is a, a capacitor and a, fil a resistor a capacitor and a diode which uh, rectifies and filters the RF signal and if you do it well enough or, or carefully enough you can get a representative signal a DC signal that's that can be measured with your digital voltmeter as a DC volts and uh, uh, if you can compare the input signal to the output signal that you're measuring um, you can get a good comparison of the attenuation or the filter um, characteristics another way that you can measure and plot uh, the output of a device under test is um, I started uh, introducing here the, the sweeper input card that we've talked about uh, last week and actually started to come about more in fruition right now. You'll actually see pictures of it in the following uh, following steps. So you get some kind of a, a it's an improved precision RF um, probe. It uses a log amp and again you, you can place a DVM on its output. Joe actually does that on his bench and that's shown in the diagram in the picture below. Or you could take the sweeper uh, input card that RF probe that uh, that we have in the green card below uh, connected into the micro 908 and actually have the micro 908 read the DC voltage and display it along with the frequency on its front display and that's also shown in the photo down below um, another way is to take the sweeper you know RF probe combine it with the micro 908 or anything else that can automatically read that voltage at that given frequency and then the micro 908 is able to send the data to the PC, much as it does for SW, creating SWR plots and complex impedance plots. So this time we get the data going to the PC that um, sends the frequency and the, and the output signal value. And when compared again to the input signal value, um, one can have a nice plot of the roll-off of that device under test. But well, that's the basic diagram that um, we're dealing with when trying to measure this filter. And if we go down a little bit in the page, we see, and you can click on any of these photos and see a larger, uh, a larger view. Uh, Joe's got his uh, HP8640B there with a voltmeter showing 1.9 volts. Um, the output of the generator feeds the input of that uh, LPF card that we just showed. And out of the LPF card goes into the sweeper board, that RF uh, probe on that green card, which is shown off to the right side. And uh, the log amp on that in a very precisely uh, uh, controlled and, and uh, isolated manner is able to uh, measure down to less than 60 dB, uh, 60 dB down signals that are that low. 
and convert it to um, DC voltage. And then on this card here, we also have an A to D converter. That's the little chip you see in the upper left-hand corner that takes that analog voltage. It goes from 0 to 2.7 volts, which is the output spec of the log amp, corresponding to um, uh, the, D, uh, the power level to uh, the DB on the input to DC voltage in the output, that transfer characteristic of the log amp. Takes that DC output voltage and converts it into uh, uh, the digital world and transmits it over I squared C to whatever instrument that we're reading. It also outputs direct analog voltage. So you can have, uh, as Joe does with his voltmeter on the left hand side, he actually measures the voltage uh, out of the log amp. Question. Sure, go ahead. When you're measuring frequency response, are we concerned about keeping the input level to the filter constant across the frequency domain? Yes and no. It's important to know what your input is relative to the output. So if your frequency varies, uh, if your frequency source, your signal source varies a little bit, if you know what the variation is, ultimately it's the comparison from input to output that you're really looking to, uh, to have. So in effect, it's really not important to know the absolute number, the precise number of the, uh, the level of the input signal or the level of the output, but only the relationship between the output and the input. And that is, of course, what determines the transfer characteristic. Yeah, that, yeah I agree with that. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is that in order to get a, uh, a proper uh, plot of the, the device, you need to know where that input is at, right? Can I step in for a sec? Yeah, sure. Yeah, what, actually there is a calibration step. If, if you have a uh, frequency source that varies with amplitude, you have to do a calibration step first, whereby you sweep the thing either manually or if you're under computer control, uh, under control of the, um, the processor, and you, you um, bypass the filter with uh, a piece of cable, a coax cable, and measure at each frequency across the uh, across the span you're going to measure. You measure the amplitude and then use that to compute a uh, calibration number that uh, you apply to what you uh, uh, to the measurement you take out of the filter, so that you can calibrate out the uh, uh, frequency, the amplitude variations with frequency. the The goal is to do it automated so that there's a cal step in setting up the uh, test equipment, although you can do it manually as I've done. Okay, thank you. Uh, I have a question too. Sure, go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> when you're selecting your toroid, whether it's a T37 or a T50, one obvious consideration is the size of the wire and how many terms you can get through it. I wonder if there are any other uh, ramifications uh, to the size of the toroid you'd select. If you is it better to go with a smaller toroid or a larger toroid? Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Generally, I'll turn it over to Joe in a second. But generally, the size of the toroid often for uh, me is just a matter of how many turns I need to get on that uh, toroid. I remember a project that Joe and I had some time ago, uh, a Fireball Forty. And it called for, on a, it was on a T37 wind uh, core, 
something like 60 windings. And I'll be darned, it's, it was darn near impossible to get one layer of windings along the perimeter of that uh, core. And it's important uh, from a computation and predictability standpoint of inductance not to have multiple layers of windings. You want to have them all in one layer. So I should have specified a larger core size for that particular reason. But it seems reasonable to me, Joe, that uh, power uh, rating comes into factor here too. Indeed it does, yeah. Um, we're, we're going with what we're familiar with, George, with the T37, maybe the T50. I'm being a little more conservative. What you can do is uh, you can either look at the existing designs and see what other folks have used. If you believe uh, their cores are big enough, you can go with them. Or the, the really proper way to do it, if I were back at uh, L3 Communications, the way I would do it would be to uh, design the filter, to uh, run, the, uh, uh, run an analysis of the filter, through a program such as LT-SPICE, where I can actually see what the operating voltages across each component in there would be, and then uh, use the appropriate uh, tool or uh, catalog to see what's appropriate. For capacitors, you can find the ratings of the capacitors for voltage. For toroids, on the other hand, you need something a little more special. Um, there is a link in uh, some of the information we have here to uh, a mini ring calculator, which is from a German fellow, where you can you can crank in a uh, given inductance and a core size, specify the voltage across that toroid core, and it'll tell you what the what the stress on the core will be, what the heating will be, uh, so that then you can choose a a core that's not going to uh, burn itself up. You can choose the appropriate core size. Generally speaking, for anything below uh, 10 watts or so, uh, T25 or T37 is probably good. When you get up to 20 watts or so, you probably want to use a, uh, a T50, a T, yeah, T50. And um, for QRO, you've got to go to much bigger toilets. That answer the question? Absolutely. Thank you very much. George, uh, one more aside. Uh, we've been, we've, uh, you and I know it because we've, uh, we've been through it. But um, uh, you hinted at it. But when we're when we're using this uh, precision RF detector, um, it's a it uses a log detector chip, analog devices. It has a DC output that is proportional to the RF input. And um, one of the very nice characteristics about it is it is very, very accurate and repeatable, and you can you can uh, you can there is uh, such a thing as a, a scale factor. It's a slope in there, such that um, the output DC varies uh, on the order of 25 millivolts per dB of change in the RF input. So anywhere along its uh, operating curve. Anytime you increase voltage by the output, you see the output voltage increase by 25 millivolts, that meant, means the input increased by a dB. Um, and you can use that number then to measure DC and, and calibrate yourself either uh, with a program or uh, manually, as I've done with my setup, to uh, tell the actual dB values. Another, another thing, if you look at that picture of the 
precision detector we have, um, you'll see that they're around in the middle of the PC board is kind of a metallic square. Well, that's bare copper. Um, what we intend, once we have the um, circuit all debugged and for final usage, we're going to actually solder a little metal shield over the uh, log detector chip to provide shielding right on board so that you don't have to put it in a uh, shielded metal box. And we have, um, we have vias coming out the bottom of the board very short leads outside the shielded area so that it should be uh, pretty immune to uh, stray pickup of RF. Uh, those of you who have built some uh, sensitive RF detectors have to put them in shielded boxes the rest of that. We wanted to do it on one little board where we, hit, we control all the shielding and you don't have to go to extraordinary measures to use this. Uh, back to you George. Thanks Joe. Well this is great discussion. I'll tell you that when you're just kind of flying through some of the first pass of discussion, it, uh, the, a lot of the details are, are fun when you can drill down on them and kind of talk about them. Uh, just to elaborate a little bit on that uh, that sweeper input card, if you have the photo up in front on your screen, um, the uh, the copper looks kind of scraped away. Well, it is. I forgot to take off the. I forgot to provide solder mask to uh, a blocking of the solder mask. So I, we had to scrape off uh, the solder mask around that um, ring that encircles the sensitive circuits and thus expose the copper. Once the circuit is working just fine and to our satisfaction, as Joe said, what, we're, what we have is some little, uh, uh, like a sheet of bronze that we fabricate uh, um, a tin shield that's going to, or a bronze shield that's going to, be soldered down on top of that circuit and around and soldered to that uh, uh, the perimeter, thus providing a nice isolated uh, shielded area for uh, to enhance the precision measurements that are being made, especially at low signal level. That's that's really important. Um, if you look in the if uh, we're we're down to the short strokes here on the for the web page and and uh, for the content tonight, but if you look at the <clears throat> the very bottom pictures, you'll see. The instrumentation that I used in my setup, um, I took uh, that sweeper input card and I put it into the Micro 908. On the right hand side you see the Micro 908, the inside of it, and the sweeper card is positioned on some standoffs and, and just above and to the right of the batteries. And then there's just four wires, two for power, the red and the, uh, whatever the color is, the red and the brown I guess. And then um, the other two are for the serial data, the I squared C that goes over to the card in order to read, such that the microcontroller, that square um, control on the upper left-hand card, the HC908 controller, this software is able to pull in the data from that A to D on the sweeper input card and then actually uh, manipulate the data. And as Joe was saying, there's a lot of ways that you can uh, uh, use the data compute the data, infer the data based on the known slope and the known characteristics of the uh, log amp. Um, knowing the input signal level versus the output signal level and uh, uh, come up with some interesting plots and data. Now for those of you who might not understand or know what the uh, the Micro 908 is, uh, just in, in a very quick summary, it's an antenna analyzer that um, automatically or manually sweeps frequency um, 
um, in whatever increments that you wish from one megahertz down to um, I think 100 megahertz uh, from one megahertz down to 100 hertz and it uh, measures the SWR and characters and, and the complex impedance of uh, what's on the antenna port which is along the which is the connector at the top of the unit what we did is we added a the sweeper card uh, to provide the port on the left side of the micro 908 such that the signal that uh, the, is being generated the DDS signal is squirted out of the port at the top through the cable and into the LPF shown on the left hand side out of the bottom of the LPF and then into the side of the micro 908 where it gets read so it's kind of a classic uh, it's similar to the way in which two port measurements are made in this case here we're just providing a signal and the measurement capability in the same instrument but it's very convenient and as I alluded to when the software is complete it's it's slightly it's uh, it's still in development right now almost working there's a PC an RS-232 port on the top of the instrument that connects to your PC optionally to accept whatever data is being generated by the instrument and then the, the PC program can take in that data and then plot it in this case here we are looking to see and this is what we'll report next week of course we'll actually be able to report um, show a plot of the frequent um, the amplitude of the uh, output of the LPF versus the frequency at uh, from from um, 14 kilohertz all the way up to uh, beyond four uh, 14 megahertz so ostensibly hopefully we'll be able to see the actual plots that were in that were uh, theoretically shown the theoretical plots were shown here on this page we'll be able to show the empirical data results as well and hopefully they'll match which will kind of make a uh, complete the circuit as as it were for um, um, this design exercise we set out to do something uh, we just selected the components and built the circuit and measured it and then compared it to the expected results and see if it was uh, what we anticipated um, Joe, anything else at the bottom of this uh, of this page? I think we've run out of material here for tonight. And did we accomplish things that we wanted to accomplish? Yeah, I think uh, I think we uh, pretty much covered it. We've gone through um, <clears throat> from uh, description of what we wanted to do as far as uh, uh, specs for a filter. We've uh, shown the design tools to actually come up with the component values. And to tweak them a little bit to uh, to get a filter that can be uh, made with uh, relatively standard components, uh, and then analyze the uh, results of the filter again using the uh, design software, so that we can verify that uh, the filter does, at least on paper, does what we want it to do. And um, we've given an intro here using some um, kind of advanced. Uh, information uh, for what we're going to do <clears throat> pardon me in future segments to do physical measurements to uh, to either back up uh, what the designs say the filter is going to do or to uh, tell us uh, that it doesn't work and we're going to have to uh, tweak a little bit more as uh, happens with many things in the real world to uh, see what's happening but having a um, handy tool to uh, do a quick analysis of the uh, filter plots uh, is a very, very good thing to have on the bench. Uh, 
in industry, what you would do to do the same thing would be to use a uh, spectrum analyzer and uh, a, a sweep generator. Uh, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars for this. Uh, for simple filters where um, you don't have to uh, get down to a gnat's eyelash, uh, you can use reasonably simple equipment to, uh, to build and actually uh, measure characterized filters uh, they can be used for hand purposes. You wouldn't necessarily uh, want to uh, use them in the space station or something going to the moon, but uh, they're entirely practical for, uh, for the average hand to, uh, to roll his own and to know what it is when he's rolled it. Hey, Joe, I was looking at the, um, there is, um, the diagrams, the plots that we uh, showed in step number, uh, step number five. If you wanted to take a look at that, you'll see the that there are two dips. Uh, after, just after the initial fast roll-off, there are two dips um, that are shown there. And maybe I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm feeding the uh, feeding the uh, um, feeding this over to you. But uh, can you comment on those two dips and do they how the, how they might relate to the actual circuit? And specifically, might they be related to the parallel capacitances uh, of the parallel LCs that uh, John was asking about earlier? Yeah, I kind of mentioned that in passing as I was going through this. But uh, yeah, those two dips are uh, attenuation poles where uh, the frequencies are the frequencies of those two resonant circuits that uh, give uh, an, an attenuation notch. And uh, indeed, one of them is about 14 megahertz, and the other is uh, at about uh, 20 some megahertz, corresponding roughly to the second and third harmonics of, uh, of the uh, um, second pair of harmonics of the fundamental signal. Uh, and in fact, I'm not sure if um, I don't know that the the uh, uh, AAD designer tells you that. Some other design packages. When you do the analysis, when you do the design, they actually tell you what those uh, what those notch frequencies are, just as a uh, belt and suspenders so that you you know they're in the ballpark. Perfect. Um, and I'm just scanning over the log here. I see that John, you had, or not John. I'm sorry, Terry. Terry had asked a question about where do we get one of those island cutters. Um, and um, that was featured in the island, uh, the Islander amplifier that I referenced. And ultimately, I had, you know, we in, in the New Jersey QRP had purchased hundreds, hundreds of these things from a supplier down in uh, Florida at a good rate, uh, at a good, at a good price, and uh, ultimately sold all of them out. And then when I went back to the supplier, he had gone out of business or no longer supplied that item. But somebody later on in the QRP field had found end mills, a source for end mills. What we can do is probe around a little bit um, to to find out what the current source for that can be, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll post it on our um, our Teamspeak website here, and uh, for those who might want to get their hands on it, it is a really really handy way to quickly make up a circuit. And I'll tell you, I had that circuit. It literally took me. I had the components ready. I mean, I had I had them out of my junk box. It took me 15 minutes to put that circuit together exactly from, as you see, that's from the point of uh, 
cutting the, the circuit card down to size, <clears throat> uh, steel wooling it to get it all bright and shiny, washing it off with soap, drying it, put two coats of um, Krylon on it, and um, just to help reduce oxidation, keep it looking nicer a little bit longer. And then I kind of measured out real briefly, uh, just eyeballed it where the different islands would go, took it over to my little drill press with the end mill in it, put, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, I think it was six uh, islands right across the, the center of it, and then uh, proceeded over to the the workbench where I soldered the components onto it. So all in all, that took about 15 minutes. It was really straightforward. So it's kind of a fun and easy way to build circuits. We'll get we'll get a reference here for the group if you're interested in it. All right. Are there any other questions uh, before we wrap up this uh, session tonight? Um, like I said, at least for the portion, the first part of next week's session, what we're going to do is uh, present the measured results from our filter and uh, just uh, show and complete this web page and show how it um, compares to the empirical results. I'm sorry, how it compares to the theoretical results uh, that we forecasted that we would get shown on the page right now. Hopefully, um, you too would be um, inquisitive enough maybe to do the same kind of uh, follow along here. It's a really easy thing to do. It's fun and you learn something every time you uh, you start to do it, even from the standpoint of, uh, from the standpoint of, hey George, where are those BNCs? Those are pretty cool BNCs. And frankly, I didn't have those BNCs shown on my LPF board. I didn't have, I didn't find those until Joe showed me them when we were working on an earlier project, a project earlier this year. Those are really handy little BNC connectors, and they solder up really nicely out of the copper clad, and they're small, low profile. And we're probably going to use that BNC on the sweeper card just because it's a, it's a lower profile. Um, BNC connector. But anyways, you learn something new every time you, you, you try a project, even as simple as something like this. But along the way, instead of uh, instead of worrying about or complaining about not being able to, to buy a $10,000 piece of equipment, measurement equipment, for literally less than $50, um, um, you can get some measurement equipment together here, make some equipment on your own, and uh, with a DVM, or an even less expensive too, of course, um, come up with something that is a little bit more manually intensive, um, but certainly as of equal enough value to us as homebrewers. Um, without spending all of that money, you can have as good results that are really, really handy to use. Okay, any questions before we wrap her up tonight? I have a question about calibration. Okay, I'm not sure if that was you, Randy, or Larry, but Randy, why don't you go ahead with your question. Okay, this is Randy, WB0SMX. On, uh, on step four in Joe's design, he indicated a capacitance spread and an inductance spread in uh, red characters. I'm wondering what the significance of, uh, of those spreads are. <laughs> That's something that comes out of the... Uh... AADE filters uh, designer, and uh, frankly, uh, I'm not certain other than it, it just tells you min-max values for the uh, capacitors. Uh, I haven't made use of it. Uh, don't really uh, know what it's all about. Uh, when I have a chance, I'll read the, uh, the help file that, that goes along with the uh, program and uh, find out what it what it means. Sorry for the ignorance.
That's okay, Joe. I uh, appreciate your answer. WB0SMX on the RF link. Uh, clear. Oh, great. RF link. That sounds, sounds interesting, Randy. Thanks for joining. And Joe, looking at your diagram there, too, uh, that Randy was referencing, I see that, and maybe again you mentioned this, there are blue, um, there's blue text there showing um, the frequency of the L3C3 combination and the frequency of the L5C5 combination being the two dips, I suspect, uh, that we see in the diagram. Was, did that come out from the um, AADE tool itself? And did you, how did you specify that? Dang, you're right, George. Yeah, yeah, it does come out of the AADE tool. You'll see that they are approximately the second and, and third harmonics. They're not exactly. Um, depends on the exact uh, component values you use. Just use standard component values. So it's not exactly uh, not exactly right on, but uh, that's close enough for government work. Indeed. And also, I asked you a question earlier offline along the same lines. There was some way that they showed in their help file to um, um, to have a given inductor's turn number of turns on a certain core of a certain uh, wire uh, size and I couldn't find out how to do that so clearly there are dimensions of this tool that are just unexplored and maybe not well as much defined but um, certainly capabilities that we have. We've only scratched the surface on that. So this is a very cool design. I learned something in using it uh, today as well. Um, uh, Larry, you had a question. Yes, I have a question about calibration. I can see how, be it manually or automatically, with the, uh, the sweeper input card and the, and the some signal generator uh, source, you could uh, run an amplitude versus frequency and, and actually see what the uh, signal generator uh, sourcing amplitude is over the frequency range. But how does one, when you look at uh, in, step, uh, in step five, that input impedance uh, plot for George's uh, low-pass filter, once uh, this, this straight-through uh, uh, connection and associated calibration data is collected. How, when, that, when you now uh, measure the insertion loss of the actual low-pass filter, whose input impedance is not 50 ohms over the frequency range, and so the uh, associated calibration data for the signal generator doesn't uh, doesn't exactly match uh, the impedance it, it's really seeing uh, at the low-pass filter input when you make the actual uh, uh, filter insertion loss of measurements. Yeah, indeed, the impedance uh, does vary with frequency. Um, strictly speaking, what we're doing is a an insertion loss measurement. We're doing a measurement in a 50-ohm system. Um, so the actual impedance that appears there, uh, in effect, just adds to the, uh, the passband transmission ripple. Um, you would go crazy if you tried to uh, uh, tried to uh, uh, do calculations to figure out what was going on. What we're doing here is just doing a simple, uh, as I say, in the 50 ohm system, we're doing a simple insertionless measure, not uh, taking other the, any of the other stuff into account. Um, practically speaking, in a system. Uh, the effect more generally would be uh, what would that uh, impedance variation do to the, the stage ahead. 
would it cause it to be unstable or uh, act in some squirrely nonlinear way. But uh, generally speaking, we're just limiting to operating a 50-ohm system and um, uh, doing things in such a, such a way that uh, it doesn't affect our calibration. Joe, isn't this actually a, uh, is what Larry asks is almost a variant of what I had been exploring with you uh, before. And I, I think I logicked it through a little bit in my head as well, in that in simplistic terms, are we not assuming that the signal generator has a sufficient enough drive to be not affected to any measurable degree of significance um, by variations of the load such that once we characterize the generator being used to insert the signal, um, you know, we can be assured that it's not going to be enough affected by the changing impedance of the load itself? Well, that, that's a couple part, couple part answer. The, uh, the answer in doing a straight insertion loss measurement is that um, you want to characterize the, you want to have a, a signal generator whose output impedance is 50 ohms. And um, after that, you don't care what the output does going into a filter because the filter is, assumes, filter has been designed to operate in a 50 ohm system. So uh, it really doesn't care um, beyond a certain amount what, uh, what the actual value is because you're going to use it in a 50 ohm system, uh, it all comes out in the wash. If you tried to measure the input and the output of the filter uh, with just a voltmeter, you would go nuts because the input, the input voltage would indeed go bonkers all over the place as the output varied. But as I said before, what we're doing is a, uh, a straight insertion loss measurement where uh, if you assume everything is 50 ohms, you don't care what happened in between because you're only looking at the end. Any follow-up, Larry? Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I guess I was you know, hearing you, you, Joe and uh, George, hearing you talk about this. It sounds like a situation where if you have a real solid 50 ohm source for the signal generator, which may be a good instrument or not as good a source with a 10 dB uh, accurate 50 ohm attenuator between the source and uh, the input to the um, low pass filter, that uh, with that type of uh, setup, uh, when you run the calibration curve, as far as the signal genera generator is concerned, it's going to see a reasonably stable 50 ohms due to you know, its characteristics as a signal generator or due to this, uh, this 10 dB attenu attenuator in between. So this roughly two to one variation in uh, input impedance of the filter over the frequency range of interest, it's roughly, uh, you know, before you get out into that past 15 megahertz, it looks like something in the 25 to 100 ohm range. Uh, the signal generator is, and, and its amplitude is going to be relatively constant due to this uh, this very accurately sourced uh, 50 ohms uh, uh, source, and um, so that answers the mail for measurement purposes. That's an excellent summary there, Larry. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I assume 50 ohms, but uh, yes, if you have a squarely signal generator. It would be a good idea indeed to put a 10 dB pad there. 
if uh, to stabilize things. If you look at some of the work that uh, w, uh, W7ZOI Wes Hayward did when he was doing uh, uh, crystal filter measurements, he actually did put an isolating pad between his signal generator and the uh, uh, crystal uh, quartz crystal measurement stuff to establish a, uh, 50, a constant 50 ohm impedance as a known starting point. Good technique. To add to the squirreliness, and I, I, I only add this to say that there are some complexities to even the most simply thought of circuits and functions that we know. I've, I've encountered low-pass filters from day one as a ham, some, some 30, 40 years, uh, a long time ago. And... Uh, I thought I knew all there was. We had a comment on it last week that I explored offline with Joe, and I said, this is really starting to make my head hurt, so I didn't really want to take it any further. But I had been doing some reading up on it a little bit, and let me just drop it on you right now. If you missed last week's comment that a filter, and this is illustrated, by the way, in the, uh, <clears throat> in the plot that we're talking about here, the impedance, the input impedance variations for this filter. A filter filters by means of changing impedance at different frequencies and the input signal is reflected back when there are greater frequency um, uh, or impedance deviations mismatch. when there's a mismatch when there's a mismatch um, so I think so I think the point if you're looking at that input impedance um, you above 10 megahertz you really see that impedance go south uh, um, and that's when it, the mismatch starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and essentially that's that's causing a bigger and bigger attenuation and the filter is rolling off so if you really look at the different components and the physics of the actual signal and the components that are being used you start to understand the bigger picture but I'll tell you I never thought of it that way for some 30 years leading up to this point Anyways, we'll leave that for another topic, um, another another day. Okay, we're okay. going to wrap it up tonight. Thanks very much for uh, everybody attending. Uh, again, this has been the January 3rd session of Chat with the Designers. And uh, we thank everybody for attending. We're going to meet again next week. Uh, same time, same uh, uh, channel. Um, as I said, we're going to continue and finish off this particular topic with the empirical results. And probably introduce a different topic. Um, or take a breather and just talk about general stuff uh, next week. But hopefully you all enjoyed what we had here to present. Um, there's been a lot of work in kind of preparing for and after each of these sessions, but it's fun stuff. And I uh, hope that you're able to take advantage of it and spread the word. If you find that some of your other groups are, are might find some of this of interest, to spending an hour, hour and 15 with us um, each week is uh, uh, can be a fun thing. And certainly bring your questions your neat kits that you've just discovered, your Christmas kits that you're starting to build, we'd all love, we'd love to hear about it. And this is uh, the place to kind of chew the fat about such things. So once again, this is George N2APB and Joe N2CX, moderators for Chat with the Designers, thanking you one and all for this week's session, and say Happy New Year and good night to everybody. 73 all.